All right, this morning is August 29th, 2004. Our message this morning is undignified. Last week was uh, unlikely servants. And this week is undignified. I don't know whether I'm trying to alphabetize these or what, but it's just how it happens. And as I was studying at the coffee house this morning, and I really felt like this was good. I mean, I felt like the Lord was pouring into me what He wanted me to share. And that's a great feeling. You know, there's nothing worse than worried that the message that you're standing up to preach is one of your own invention. You know, and when you preach on a regular basis, Wednesdays and Sundays, there are times you stand up and you're not sure that this is exactly what the Lord wants. You just think it is. I've been very fortunate in the last three or four weeks, or four or five weeks, there has been no question. And as I left the coffee house, I just penciled down the title, Undignified. I mean, I don't... I've four or five notes on a piece of paper arranged like a starburst, and that's what I usually preach from. But I just penciled down the words undignified, and I heard on the radio, uh, which I also don't usually listen to on Sunday morning, but they were doing worship, and the commentator came on, and he said, uh, it is so important in church that we not be stiff, that we not be reserved. I'm reminded of the words of David, it said, yet will I be more undignified than this. The next song is by Matt Redman and is called Undignified. Now, that is the only song I heard between Missouri City and here, and it was after the title and after I worked out the message. Do you think Jesus is trying to encourage us? Come on. Appreciated that prophecy, by the way. I know that's, you know, some people prophesy easily. Others, others don't. And some prophesy in English without thinking about it, and others in tongues, and all of those things. And the Bible says these things must be. It doesn't say they might be. It doesn't say they should be. It says they must be. And the reason they must be is because it's encouraging. You know, I had a thought in prayer that we were praying before everybody got here. Somebody else prophesies in tongues, and I get an interpretation that may, may, may not even be complete. I mean, Claire finished it. But that wouldn't have been triggered if there had not been the prophecy in tongues. I don't know why God chose to work it out that way. Why he didn't just tell me when I woke up this morning, I'd like you to say this to him. I mean, I get every opportunity to say things to you, but it's how he woke it out. Uh, worked it out. And uh, it chills went all over my body immediately, and there was a witness that the Spirit was present. And that's enough for me. Okay, y'all in Proverbs? Turn to Proverbs 14. I want to read you something in Proverbs 14. Verse 12. Listen up, Judah. It says, This, I'm sorry, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. And everybody's familiar with that, right? I want you to compare it very closely with another scripture. I want you to tell me what the difference is. You'll turn to Proverbs 16, verse 25. That way you can, you can flip back and forth to compare these. It says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. We have two different scriptures here, right? I mean, they're numbered differently. What on earth is the difference between them? Oh, wow. Look, we've stumped the crowd. There's not a difference. You know? And what do you know about being in a classroom setting? If a teacher says something more than once, if they write it on the board, what are you supposed to get from that? It's going to be on the test. God saw fit. He only had so many chapters in the book of Proverbs. I mean, there are only 31 chapters that penciled this down. So many verses in each chapter. And he saw fit to say this twice. 
That means that the word is emphasizing it. The entire book of Judges is about this topic. It says everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And what is the cycle in the book of Judges? You continually see the people fall into a degraded state where they were oppressed by people and God had to raise up a deliverer because they were doing what was right in their own eyes and it brought destruction. Well, in the body of Christ, it's absolutely no different. There's a way that seems right to us that just kind of comes natural. But that's not what we're called to live by, the way that seems right to us. And as we are born again and as our lives are redeemed, there's a merging of our will with God's. And we call that the perfect will. You know, when your will and God's will are in one accord, you pray and you get what you're after and all of those things. But you can't be fooled into thinking that because God gives you the desires of your heart, because you're blessed on every side, because those things, that you get the cart before the horse, that you imagine it and God blesses it. You know, it it doesn't work that way. It has to be God's imagination. You do it and it gets blessed. But as we're in the body of Christ for a while, we kind of we say, hey, man, I'm in Christ. I'm in the heavenly realm. We know he uses unlikely servants. So dismiss all my flaws. Dismiss all of these problems. If I do it, God's going to bless it. Like the tail is wagging the dog, so to speak. That ought not be. Turn with me to Leviticus 9. And we're going to pick up on this topic and uh, see where we go from here. Oh, now, you know, Leviticus 9. You'll hang a left from where you are. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, on page 118 in the Thompson chain. And we're going to start around verse 8. But before I, before I begin to read, this is the beginning of the Aaronic priesthood. Somebody asked me this week, why do I keep calling something an Aaronic blessing? To say it's Aaronic is to say it's Levitical. To say it's Levitical is to say it's Aaronic. They, they all go back to the same guy. So when we say something was an Aaronic blessing, it means it was the blessing that Aaron taught his sons as the priesthood uh, in Israel. If we say it's Levitical, it means the exact same thing. So the Aaronic priesthood is beginning at this point. And God has given them special uniforms. He's given them special procedures, all kind of things, because there is a shadow and type in them. In fact, Hebrews tell us that there is a reality in the heavenlies. And these things on earth are shadowy copies. So that you can look at them and get an idea of what's going on in the heavenlies. Did you know there was a priesthood in the heavenlies? I I mean, a lot of people go their whole lives and never think, who was Melchizedek? You know, the Bible says that he was a priest of the Most High God. He didn't have a beginning or an ending. The Bible speaks of a tabernacle being there. All of these things, Moses looked into the heavens and saw a copy of it. It's very important then that when God gives specific details, if he says he wants a sash with a blue cord in it, you better put the blue cord in it. There's a reason. There's no filler with God. That in mind, we're going to pick up on verse 8. The people are really excited, by the way. They're excited because their new priesthood has been unveiled. They've come out of Egypt. Now they're seeing a visual representation of their service to God, and they're thrilled to death. And verse 8 says, So Aaron came to the altar and slaughtered the calf as a sin offering for himself. His sons brought the blood to him, and he dipped his finger into the blood and put it on the horns of the altar. The rest of the blood he poured out at the base of the altar. On the altar he burned the fat, the kidneys, the covering of the liver from the sin offering as the Lord commanded Moses. The flesh and the hide he burned up outside the camp. 
It's interesting that all of the inner parts of an animal belong to God, while the outward fleshy part of the animal could be burned up or eaten or sent somewhere else. But God wanted the internal parts. You don't have to be a really bright guy to figure out what it is God's trying to speak to us about that. Verse 12, Then he slaughtered the burnt offering. His sons handed him the blood, and he sprinkled it against the altar on all sides. They handed him the burnt offering piece by piece, including the head, and he burned them on the altar. He washed the inner parts and the legs and burned them on the top of the burnt offering on the altar. Aaron then brought the offering that was for the people. He took the goat and the people's sin offering and slaughtered it and offered it for a sin offering as he did with the first one. Here's the key verse. He brought the burnt offering and offered it in the prescribed way. Now, if you go to the doctor this week and he writes you something on a piece of paper that has to do with certain doses of a drug, what do we call that? A prescription. Now, is it important that you follow a prescription? If you don't, what could happen to you? You could get worse or you could die. Because a prescription means that there is a prescribed way that you do something. And that prescribed way is for your benefit. Because if you deviate from the left or the right of the prescribed way, you could have unintended consequences, right? Well, the Aaronic priesthood, the Levitical priesthood began in a prescribed way. There was a very carefully detailed pattern laid out in the law of God for everybody to get so that they could watch the prescribed way. They could be obedient to the prescribed way. They could learn from the prescribed way. And the New Testament even tells us that their lives could serve us by being a living example for us to learn from. But it it all breaks down from the beginning if you don't follow the prescribed way. Well, how did Aaron know what the prescribed way was? Moses told him. Because there was a mediator between man and God. And it was Moses for the nation of Israel. He mediated for the people. Watch this. Prescribed way. Now, we're going to skip over to chapter 10, verse 1. What's happened is all of the people have been excited in jubilant celebration. They have watched and they are excited because their sins are remitted. Now, Abinadab, I'm sorry, Nadab and Abihu are two sons of Aaron who have just been anointed in priestly glory. The Bible even says that they were given garments for the purpose of bringing them honor and dignity. They wore an outward garment that was supposed to speak to the people. This person is specially set apart by God. And from that, they should have a source of excitement. Now, there's a problem, though. Sometimes when men are blessed by God, that blessing does not turn out for their ultimate good. In fact, we see the opposite in the Bible. When hardship comes in someone's life, out of that adversity, blessing springs. If you strike the church and the sheep scatter, there's churches everywhere. The church grew in the fear and the knowledge of the Lord. It's during times of total peace, total contentment, that the church has had the biggest problem. And the same is true in most people's lives. Well, these young men, they see Daddy making the sacrifices. They see Uncle Moses doing his thing with God, and they are excited. They've been celebrating. There's some indication later in the chapter that perhaps they'd had a little wine. And they do something. 
It says, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, took their censers. This is chapter 10, verse 1 on page 119. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, took their censers, put fire in them, and added incense. Then they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to His command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Moses then said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke of when He said, Among those who approach Me, I will show Myself holy in the sight of all the people. I will be honored. He goes on to tell Aaron he can't mourn for his firstborn and secondborn sons. And the reason some people say that they drank wine was because later in the chapter he says, look, if you're going to minister before the altar, don't get drunk, okay? He doesn't say you can't drink. He says, if you're going to minister before the altar, don't get drunk. Can you imagine what Aaron must have thought seeing his sons burned up by God? Now, we read this and it's a story. My, my firstborn son sitting right here. One day he will live his life in the service of God. What did they do that was so horrible? We're going to turn to another story that will kind of clue you into that. And it's about a king named Uzzah, or Uzziah, rather. And I'm not mispronouncing. We're talking about a king, Uzziah, not, not Uzzah, who you think steadied the ark. I know what they did, though. What they did was they saw that they were anointed of God. They saw that they had been given garments to give them dignity. They saw that they had been appointed leaders, and the thought creeped in their mind. If we do it, God will bless it. Have you not thought that as Christians? Well, if we do it, God will bless it. As if you direct God's will and He anoints what you do because you're so special. Now, when we see ourselves in Christ, I tell you, when you look in the mirror, you see the righteousness of God. When you look in the mirror, you should see that you're seated in the heavenly realms with Him. You should see that you're redeemed. And I tell you, to gain your self-image, your a sense of pride, if you will, from what the Word says about you. But we, we can't be fooled. The Bible says there's a way that seems right unto a man, and in the end it leads to death. You do not direct God's favor and God's blessing. You're only blessed when you go in the footsteps of God. See, when we say that we're the body of Christ, what it means is we're acting as His body. I can heal Judah if it's really the Lord's hand through me that is healing Judah. I can't just go pray for anybody I want to and then invoke God's healing. What if He doesn't want to heal them? Now, I realize divine health says just the opposite. And I I mean, I know that. Practically, it doesn't work, though. And there's a reason it doesn't work. Prosperity says the same thing. Whoever you are, you give to this ministry. God will give back to you sevenfold. What if God doesn't want that person to have sevenfold? What if that means they're going to go buy seven more eight balls and kill themselves that day? What if God were just an investment program, a mathematical formula that you could uh, use in that way? Would not Wall Street invest? And would that make them godly? And would their wealth be a sign of God's blessing? No, I don't think so. There is a prescribed way. And when man deviates from that prescribed way, it's called unauthorized, or King James said, a strange fire. A fire that God doesn't recognize. A fire that God can't authorize. Now, People could come and watch what's going on in a little church or a big church and they see the Spirit of God moving and they go, wow, I see the fire of the Lord has lit that altar. And then they can go back, copy that in their sanctuary, trying to do it the exact way. They figure it was prescribed for them, it must be prescribed for us, and God called it strange fire because it's not what He told them to do. 
There was a pastor in Florida who threw his keys on the altar, came in and said, I give up, and revival broke out. And when revival broke out, it spilled over all around it. And you know how many pastors after that then tried to model their entire ministry after that, but it's strange fire to God because it's not what was prescribed. Now, these men, these young boys, they had a sense of self-worth that was good because God wanted them to have it. But that sense of self-worth drew them into an action that made them think God would bless whatever they did, whether it's sin or not. And God set an example. What does it mean? What does it mean when Moses says, the Lord spoke of this when He said, Among those who approach Me, I will show Myself holy in the sight of all the people. I will be honored. i tell you what it means. You know how in the Old Testament, God's will or His Word is concealed, so to speak, but in the New Testament, it's revealed? Paul said it. He said, judgment must begin with you, the house of God. What this means is those of us that are approaching God's throne receive a stricter judgment so that everybody can see. There's a prescribed way. I don't just bless Matthew because he's Matthew. I bless Matthew because, like Abel, he brings me a sacrifice that's pleasing. And I'll curse any Cain who does it their own way. Do you realize that's the only difference between Cain and Abel? It's the only difference. They both brought something. But one brought something that was the prescribed thing, the thing that he knew would be pleasing to God, and the other brought the works of his own hands. God gave him a chance to repent. He didn't, so he forever defined a group of people called the way of Cain. Now, I don't want to be in that way. I'm not going to let a sense of dignity, the way that, God, the way that I think God ought to do things, push me into that. We'll develop that a little further, I promise. Uzzah, he's a king in Second Chronicles. Not a lot is said about Uzzah, but he was a king of Judah during a prominent time. If you turn to Second Chronicles 26, this will be going to your right. You'll pass up First and Second Kings, and you'll be in Second Chronicles. It's on page 508. Oh wow. <laughs> Chapter 26, this is page 508, says, Then all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king in place of his father Amaziah. He was the one who rebuilt Elath and restored it to Judah after Amaziah rested with his fathers. Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 52 years. By the way, the other boys, uh, Nadab and Abihu, that was about 1600 B.C. This guy, about 750 B.C. We're going to go back and split the difference between them at 1000 B.C. and read about David in a minute. But I just want you to have an idea where they are in time. Because a lot of times when God does something, you know, like Ananias and Sapphira got just totally slammed by God, they go, oh, well, that was just because it was the beginning of the church. God was trying to make a point. <laughs> Now, anything to keep that from applying today, because you're terrified, it might apply to you, right? Okay. Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 52 years. His mother's name was Jecoliah. She was from Jerusalem. He did what was right in the eyes of Yahweh, just as his father Amaziah had done. He sought God during the days of Zechariah. Now, that's Zechariah who wrote the book of Zechariah. He also lived during the days of Amos who instructed him in the fear of God. As long as he sought the Lord, 
God gave him success. As long as he sought the Lord, God gave him success. How many times have you gone and done something and then tried to get God to bless what you did? Oh, yeah, me too. I one time bought a Chevy truck just like that. And I loved it. And it was a nice, big, fat idol in my life. I kept a total of 90 days and lost $3,000. He went to war against the Philistines and broke down the walls of Gath, Jabna, and Ashdod. He then rebuilt towns near Ashdod and elsewhere among the Philistines. God helped him against the Philistines and against the Arabs who lived in Ger, Baal, and against the Mennonites. The Ammonites brought tribes to Uzziah, and his fame spread as far as the border of Egypt because he had become very powerful. Now, we're getting an image of a really cool guy, aren't we? He sought the Lord, and the Lord blessed him. He became very powerful, and his fame grew. You could think of a lot of ministers in this category, huh? Who start off preaching in a hotel and end up preaching in a coliseum. Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate and at the valley gate and at the angle of the wall. And he fortified them. He also built towers in the desert and dug many cisterns because he had much livestock in the foothills of the plain. He had people working in his fields and vineyards, in the hills and in the fertile lands, for he loved the soil. Uzziah had a well-trained army ready to go out by divisions according to their numbers and mustered by Jalel. The secretary of Messiah, not Messiah, but Messiah, <laughs> the officers under the direction of Hananiah, one of the royal officials, the total number of the family leaders over the fighting men was 2,600. Under their command was an army of 307,500 men trained for war, a powerful force to support the king against his enemies. You can contrast this to so many other kings in the Bible who had such small armies, who were so outnumbered, who were not strong in battle and had to cry out to God. Men who cried out, Lord, don't let men prevail over you. Use us. And then the Lord went out and conquered in battle for them. They said, use us for we rely on you. Well, God gave this guy blessing after blessing. He built cisterns for his livestock. He fortified the cities of God. He seemed blessed in every way, a tower of strength, right? That's awesome. Wouldn't everybody want to be like that? I mean, wouldn't you? In Jerusalem, he made machines designed by skillful men for use on the towers and on the corner defenses to shoot arrows and hurl large stones. His fame spread far and wide, and he was greatly helped, uh uh-oh, until he became powerful. In light of what we've been studying, where is God the very strongest? In your weakness. So God used him powerfully and he sought the Lord and he was blessed by the Lord as long as he sought him. But then he became very powerful. And what happens? What happens to a man when he becomes powerful? What do they say? Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. You ever heard that? But after Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. He was unfaithful to the Lord his God. Well, surely, what did he do? Did he commit adultery? Did he kill somebody? What did he do that was unfaithful, that was so prideful? Well, he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. 
Azariah the priest and 80 other courageous priests of the Lord followed him in. They confronted him and said, It is not right for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord. That is for the priest, the descendants of Aaron, who have been consecrated to burn incense. Leave the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful and you will not be honored by the Lord God. Uzziah, who had a censer in his hand, ready to burn incense, became angry. What does the Bible teach you about the correction of a righteous man? It's a kindness to you. It's oil on your head. You should rather that a righteous man slap your face than allow you to go in sin. But what was his reaction? Anger. Why? Because he had the dignity of kingship. Because he had the pride in his heart of becoming a great man. So he was unable to receive correction and watch what happens. While he was raging at the priest in their presence, before the incense altar in the Lord's temple, leprosy broke out on his forehead. On his forehead. When Azariah the chief priest and all the other priests looked at him, they saw that he had leprosy on his forehead, so they hurried him out. Indeed, he himself was eager to leave because the Lord had afflicted him. If a servant of God can't get your attention and you do love the Lord, that's okay. The Lord Himself will get your attention. Because the book of Hebrews, the book of Revelation, and indeed in many places, the Bible says He corrects those He loves. See, in both cases, Nadab and Abihu and now King Uzziah, something about what God had done for them caused them to think, anything I do, God will bless. And this pride and dignity of being one who was called by God, a super charismatic, if you will, all of a sudden led them into a place where they were presuming God's will. But the Bible says that there was a prescribed way. That prescribed way had to be followed. There's a reason it had to be followed. Anything outside of the prescribed way was unauthorized fire. It's strange to the Lord and He can't honor it. With that in mind, hang a left. We're going to go backwards. We're going to be in 2 Samuel. Y'all awake so far? You know, you can have stained glass and you can have a beautiful building and have all of the right candles and all the things to create an atmosphere. You can have a beautiful sound system with the right lights and smoke and whatever else you might, mirrors if you like, whatever it takes, and it be a strange fire. People be moved. You may even have things that look like God's Spirit moving. In fact, some people may bring in with them God's Spirit and He may move upon them. But it doesn't mean that the fire came from God. You know, the, the outside world looks at Pentecostalism. It looks at the charismatic realm and sees it as total emotionalism. And a lot of it is. You know, you can have emotion that comes right from God and you can have emotion that is totally worked up. And every cult that there's ever been where somebody went and blew their head off or, you know, drank special Kool-Aid or whatever it was, they were an emotionally powerful group of people. But it was a fire that didn't come from God. You know, in the book of Revelation, there are seven churches. There are seven angels in the seven churches and they all have lampstands. In the book of Zechariah, there's a lampstand. There's olive trees on either side. There are servants in the house of God and the lampstand represents God's presence. He spoke to us one time about this being that place. There being two olive branches and there being a lampstand in here. That lampstand's got to come from God. You can have a light that's not God's light. Happens all the time. There's one right over here on this corner as you come into my subdivision off of William's Trace. 
It's the church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints. Do they shine brightly? Sure, they make the best commercials you will ever see. Are they full of zeal and emotion? Oh, yeah, they ride their little bicycles all over the place. Little minions out everywhere. Do they have some air of godliness? Well, yeah, but that fire didn't come from God because it's not the prescribed way. Uh, a moron angel, a moroni, he, he brought that. Even though Paul said, even though, yeah, macaroni brought it. Even though Paul said, if anybody brings you a different gospel, whether they be an angel or man, they'd be eternally condemned, they accepted it. So that's not God's fire. And that's an obvious one. It gets harder to discern as you get a little closer to home, which is where I hope you'll draw as we go. We in Second Samuel? David again brought, this is Second Samuel 6, on page 342. David again, yeah, Second Samuel 6, on page 342 in the Thompson chain. Those of you with the complete Jewish Bible, I know I'm running ragged. Oh, they see, that's the anointing. <laughs> I used to have a Dakes annotated Bible, and I called it the Dakes anointed Bible, and insisted it was the only one, until I realized it was all in King James, and I just couldn't deal with that. And then we discarded it and picked up an NIV, and now I say, this is the only one. <laughs> Men are like that. Second Samuel 6, page 342. David again brought together out of Israel chosen men, 30,000 in all. He and all his men set out from Bala of Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the ark. Where is God enthroned? Between the cherubim that are on the ark. The Bible speaks of God having a chariot throne that is movable. And you know what he's resting upon? Four cherubim. And they move in any direction in unison without turning. And then there's a sea of glass and there's 24 elders or ice, the Bible says, or chrysolite, Moses called it. And on top of that throne is the Ancient of Days. And the Bible says he's enthroned upon your praises. It says he's enthroned upon the ark. That ark had cherubim on it. Now, God was not literally on top of those cherubim. Those cherubim represented the cherubim that God was enthroned upon, who was there with them symbolically everywhere that the ark went. The same way God is present with us when we praise Him, enthroned upon His cherubim. See, there's a prescribed way, and the symbolism is very important. You couldn't have dogs on top of the ark. That wouldn't have represented God's throne. You couldn't have goats. You couldn't even have seraphim. You couldn't have a picture of a little naked baby with uh, wings that we call cherubim today that look nothing like that. There was a prescribed way because it was supposed to convey a message. And it's important that the message be right. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab. Now, this is, this is why I kept messing up Nadab and Abihu. It's like you cram those two names together and you get Abinadab. Different guy, different time period. This is about 1,000 B.C. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on a hill. Uzzah, not, not, not Uzziah, but Uzzah and Ohio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it. And Ohio was walking in front of it. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with songs and with harps, lyres, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah 
because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died beside the ark of God. Now, First Chronicles fifteen thirteen says why, and you don't have to go there. You can stay here. What on earth could be in common with Uzzah, with Uzziah, with Nadab and Abihu? You know, these are men that all lived roughly 250 years apart at different times in history who all did something that was similar. And what on earth could it be? Well, in some ways I've looked at Uzzah's death as a mercy killing. And this is why. See, the problem with uh, Nadab and Abihu offering their own fire before God is it didn't match the prescribed way. And if you were carefully looking into the Scriptures that bring life, searching to see when and how the Messiah would come, and they deviated from the prescribed way, you would do a disservice to all the generations that would follow you as well as the generation that was living. Because you would mess up the shadow and type. Well, what's wrong with King Uzziah going in and offering incense before the Lord? What's, what's wrong with that? I mean, after all, he just wanted to serve God, right? At least he brought something. Well, there was a problem with it. There was a prescribed way. And when you deviate from it, you do a disservice to your generation. You do a disservice to all those who would come after you that might look back and see it done wrong and not realize it was wrong. Well, then what is wrong with Uzzah reaching out and steadying an ark, uh, the ark while it's on a cart with oxen? Well, Chronicles 15.13 says that they had forgotten to inquire of the priest. They didn't know how they were supposed to carry this ark. And God wanted the ark carried in a certain way. And He wanted it carried in a certain way so that each of you sitting here today in 2004 would understand what rests upon your shoulders. When the ark of God was carried anywhere, it was carried through four rings that are like the four Gospels, and they were golden, with two poles like the covenant that carries the grace of God upon men's shoulders. Two, two poles through four rings carried upon the shoulders of men. So that if the presence of God, which it symbolized, indeed God was present above the ark, enthroned upon the cherubim, everywhere it was carried by men, they carried the glory of God on their shoulders. What does the Bible say? If you are insulted for His name's sake, what rests upon your shoulders? The glory of God. Not upon oxen. Not upon a cart that stumble and need to be steadied. Not upon anything else. The glory of God rests on your shoulders. The prescribed way teaches us this. And those that deviate from the prescribed way, regardless of their motive do a disservice to the body of Christ. It's strange fire. It's fire that God can't recognize because it's not something that He ordained. Now, in reality, was Uzzah a bad man? Probably not. This guy loved the Lord. It was for ignorance that he perished. And God took him out before He screwed it up for all generations. But whether he was a bad man or not, when we look at Nadab and Abihu, when we look at Uzziah, and we see that pride contributes to the fall, that pride and lack of understanding, in Uzzah's case, lack of knowledge, contributes to people beginning to think that whatever they do, God will bless, beginning to think that their own way is okay, forgetting what was repeated twice in the Proverbs, that there's a way that seems right unto a man, but in the end it leads to death. If we see what causes that, what's the solution? Well, David teaches us what the solution is, but he has to get it first, and he doesn't get it yet. Verse 9 of chapter 6. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? 
Why do you think David was afraid? He didn't want to mess up. The guy had a heart after God. He didn't screw up intentionally. He just messed up. He's full of weakness. He's last week. He's an unlikely servant of God. What will an outbreak of the Lord's anger? What will the fear of the Lord do for you, though? It will create in you wisdom. If you don't understand and you see a penalty because of something that people took lightly, all of a sudden you kind of straighten up your act, don't you? You know, every pastor in America, when they hear that another pastor who they believe loved the Lord screws up, takes order in their own house. You start to see them put nanny, uh, cybernet, cyber nannies on their computers. You start to see them unsubscribe to HBO, fire secretaries, those kind of things. Because when God breaks out against one of His own because He loves them, it teaches a lesson to the whole body. Hey, God's not a respecter of persons. If it happened to Him, I certainly will do it to you. This is certainly what happened during Ananias and Sapphira's day when the church grew in the fear of the Lord. Once they realized, wow, those guys did pretty good. They gave almost all of their property to the church, but because they lied about it, they got struck dead? I better not lie to God. I better not lie about anything. Do you think there was some holiness in the camp after that? I bet so. I bet so. I bet every time Peter stopped by somebody's house, you know, they got nervous, you know. You know, (laughs) honey, put that away. Whatever I mean, you know. I bet they, they got nervous. So David was afraid. He says, how can the ark of God ever come to me? He was not willing to take of the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Now, that's the wrong conclusion to come to. Oh, it's too scary for me. Let the blessing go to somebody else. But it's all right. He comes around. Instead, he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed him and his entire household. There is a whole group of people in Christianity that hang out outside of the blessings of the baptism in the Holy Spirit because they have seen some of us with the baptism in the Holy Spirit misuse it. They've gone, wow, that looks like strange fire to me. I don't think that just because somebody's filled with the Holy Spirit, they can extort people for money. I don't think that just because somebody's filled with the Holy Spirit, their behavior can be justified like that in the name of God. And people have watched that and they've seen it and they've gone, that seems like strange fire to me. I think I would just rather let that stuff stay in the house of Obed, Edom, the Gittite. You know, let's keep our, this this is what we are and this is what we believe. You know, and they got their little doctrinal statements and they won't go outside of it because they are scared of the blessing of God because they've seen it burn some people. Because if you're going to be in the house of God, more is required of you. If you're going to have God's Spirit in you in a real and meaningful way, more is going to be required of you. Just like it was Nadab and Abihu. Just like it was Uzziah. Just like it was Uzzah. And just like Paul said, judgment begins with the house of God. More is required of us. If you're a lucre hanging out on the outer fringes out there, not much is required of you. Not much at all. Because it's not even clear what team you're on. But the closer you get to Jesus, the more He wants you to get it right. That's why as you draw closer to Him, you have to balance this delicate thing of not feeling convicted as, or condemned as you see more flaws in you, realizing that as you get closer to the light, He's helping you get it in the prescribed way. Get it right. The day that you wake up and you think, you don't have any further to go. When you look in the mirror and you don't see 
a, a total need for mercy and grace. Something's wrong. You've made a uh, agreement with the enemy. He's going to leave you alone, you're going to leave him alone, and you're not going to be effective for God. And I tell you what, that's a lot of people. When you can only find flaws in other people and cannot look inwardly at all, you, you've already, you're there. You've decided to become a devourer of your brethren rather than somebody who's consumed by the fire of God. Cannibal Christians. So David was afraid. It goes to the house of uh, Obed-Edom and uh, he gets blessed. And then in verse 12, Now King David was told, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went down and brought up the ark from the house of Obed-Edom, the city of David, with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and fattened calf. David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all of his might. While he was in the, while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of trumpets, Every six steps, sacrifice. Continual dancing and joy with all of the might. If you want the glory of God to come where you are, it comes at great sacrifice, but also great rejoicing and dancing. You know, adults have a hard time doing that. Even lost people have a real hard time dancing and stuff. You know when they do it? When they get full of spirits, liquid spirits, you know? Nobody's dancing at a party. Get them all drunk, they'll dance. And the churches that don't dance at all, they're just missing being filled with something. They don't drink of, of the living water. Oh, yeah, you can be saved and not be free. You can be saved and be declared to have freedom, but not walk in the freedom. You can have a measure of the Spirit that has brought you in the body of Christ, but not drink deeply enough of the Spirit for it to overflow in all of your actions. Now, that's not God's will. That's why every time in the book of Acts, when somebody comes across people who say they're believers, they say, did you receive the Holy Spirit? And they looked to see whether people received the Holy Spirit. Now, how do you see if somebody received the Holy Spirit? You have to see it. And in most cases, they heard it. (laughs) You can't make the sign the thing that you're after. It's simply a sign of what's there. What you should be after is getting filled with the Holy Spirit. Speaking in tongues is a byproduct. I personally was totally drenched in the Spirit before I ever spoke in other tongues. All that means is I had abilities I didn't know I had. <laughs> you know. Now, I have united Pentecostal brothers that would just drown me for saying that. I can't help it. I experienced it in my life. And the man with the experience, you'll need to remember this, write it down somewhere. The man with the experience is never at the mercy of a man who merely has an argument. You can argue about it all day long, but I experienced it, buddy. So, you know, have fun. I learned that from Smith Wigglesworth, who, by the way, raised people from the dead before he spoke in other tongues. But he did speak in other tongues, and he said afterwards he felt like he wasn't even saved before. (laughs) So that's, you know, I I think he did all right before and after. Okay, so we got David. Great, great sacrifice. Great rejoicing. And uh, verse 16, As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from the window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. She brought the ark, or they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent. Boy, there's a beautiful story there. The ark of God with great sacrifice, great rejoicing has come to reside in a tent you call your body. That's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. 
And the next thing that they do is they roll up the sides of the tent. They hire musicians 24 hours a day, seven days a week on this Mount Zion, the mountain of the Lord's brightness, to worship God so that when the nations pass by, they can look into the temple, into the tent rather, of God and see the glory of God and hear people rejoicing. That's what Jesus has done with you. He's caused His glory to rest upon your shoulders so that you can raise the sides of your tent and the rejoicing will bring the nations around you to look inside and go, wow, Judah and Mandy have something different in them and desire to be in covenant with God. That's what this was for. That's why it was so important that it be done in the prescribed way. Otherwise, all of us would be out listening to oxen for the Word of God. You know, We'd be out there putting an oxen on a cart going, come on, where's the glory of God? You know, there was a prescribed way. It had to come on men's shoulders. They brought the ark. Uh, we read that set in its place in, in the tent. By the way, Acts 15 teaches us that we're living in the days of David's fallen tabernacle. And people go, what is that? And they just keep reading and they forget about it. You know what that means? The apostles in Jerusalem said, we're rebuilding David's fallen tabernacle. They realized that they were living out in reality what David had done in shadow and type. They had received the glory of God. It was in them. And now the nations were supposed to be looking at them for salvation. They realized it. You can read about it in Acts 15. Also, 2 Corinthians 5. Y'all remember some of these? Paul says, now, if this tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God. What do you think he's talking about? What followed the tabernacle of David? Solomon's temple, a permanent structure. We'll teach on all that. I mean, I teach on that stuff all the time. I don't want you to lose the point. This morning's message is undignified. David pitched a tent for it, and David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person and the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women, and all the people went to their homes. I just can't help mentioning some of this shadow and type as we go through it. When the glory of God came to reside in this tent, which first happened in Jesus and then happens in all us little Jesuses, (laughs) no such word, but little Christ, gifts were shed abroad to men and women. See, the first thing David did when this happened was give every man and woman there gifts. Now, it would be neat if they were fruit. I don't know if a raisin's a fruit or not, but you got me. And it wasn't restricted to just men. That's why Claire can prophesy in tongues in here this morning. When she received this ark, this indwelling, the king of kings gave her gifting. didn't matter whether she was a man or a woman. He gave it to her. Okay, back on t- task though. When David returned home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of slave girls, of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. Now, who knows any history about Michael, daughter of Saul? You remember, she was betrothed to David, and David played, paid a bloody price for her. A hundred Philistine foreskins, and I doubt those guys gave him up willingly. So he had some blood on his hands, didn't he? He went and he purchased her. He purchased her with a price the same way King Jesus has purchased people with a price, and a bloody price, from much warfare. But as it would turn out, Saul was still ruling. David had not risen to power. And so he gave the bride to somebody else. And she apparently went willingly. A guy named Paul Thiel. Paul Thiel. 
Yeah, who's Paul Teal? I've preached on this one before too. Paul Teal then became her husband. When David came back to inherit his kingdom that God had promised, he said, don't you show your face before me without bringing me my wife who I paid for. Paul Teal followed behind her begging and crying the entire way. And uh, Joab looked at him and said, go home. And he went home. There's a whole message there about the bride of Christ who is betrothed to Christ but has found herself flirting with the enemy, descendants of Saul. And the army, the commander of God's army, had to step in and rebuke and say, go home. But we find out that this woman with a wandering heart never had the kind of heart that could be pleasing to God anyway. Because when she saw her husband doing the things that were prescribed by God, it disgusted her. It disgusted her deeply. And listen to David's response. David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by the slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. David is the great, 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 how many ever great grandfather of Jesus. This woman missed out on the lineage of the Messiah because the way prescribed by God seemed undignified to her. Nadab and Abihu missed out on a long life of blessings before God because they decided that their way was better than God's. King Uzziah missed out on the last half of blessings in his life, even though he had done great and mighty things because he decided that his way was as good as God's way. He was so blessed by God that they were equals. And he missed out. Uzzah, poor guy, got struck dead just because God's trying to protect the, preserved, the prescribed way. And now Michael's excluded from the lineage, lineage of Jesus because it seemed unappealing to her that David was dancing in his underwear. Taking this theme into the New Testament, you can hang a right and get to Corinthians. By the way, Hosea 9.7 says that there would be a day coming. A day when a prophet would be considered a fool and anybody who was inspired would be considered a maniac. Now, friends... Walk downtown Houston, stand in the city square, and talk to businessmen who walk by and tell them that you're a prophet from God. Would they think you're a fool? You speak the inspired words of God to people. Would they think you're a maniac? Yes. That's because there's been so much strange fire around that they haven't seen the real fire. There's been so much unauthorized crap going on in the name of Jesus that they don't recognize the real thing. I remember witnessing to a guy in Denham Springs who lived across the street from me. And I said, hey, such and such and such and such. And then we met with the elders of our church. He jumped back from me about two feet. He said, elders? Man, anything with elders, that's got to be a cult. Because he had only seen things in his life that were cultish that had elders. You talk to people about prophecy in your church and all of a sudden they recoil because all they've heard of or seen is something that is strange. Now, What they saw may be the prescribed way, and it was strange to them, but more likely, they saw something that was a counterfeit 
of the prescribed way. Because Paul taught the Corinthian church when unbelievers walk in and they see this stuff going on, they'll be cut to the heart. It's a sign for them. Paul taught that. Turn into the New Testament, passing up Hosea, getting to 1 Corinthians. What is the solution then if dignity and man's pride and all of those things cause people to choose the way that seems right to them? I mean, after all, when you think of dignity, what do you think of? Somebody with a very stiff collar, you know, very prim, proper, distinguished. Why are they distinguished? Why do they have a stiff collar? Why are they dressed so nice? Why is it that people look up to them and revere them? Because they have a way and they think it's right. But the servants of God are something altogether. We don't have a confidence in our own arm. We don't have this, this arrogance that comes from within that says we have it all figured out. And by the way, that gives people security. It gives people around you peace. People like leadership, even if it's bad leadership. You know, the worst thing you can do as the head of any project is begin to falter and not give clear direction. Try to rule by consensus. The people will stone you every time, lost or saved. But So worldly people learn to really set out their good facade, a good image of how perfect they are because they know people are encouraged by that leadership and they'll follow. But there's a way that seems right to a man and it brings death because it's strange fire to God. How do the servants of God do it? You have the same strength in leadership. You have the same bold character. But how do you get it? You get it because you only see you only do, you only say what you hear your father doing. This is why Romans declares, and I say this almost every message, as many as are led by the Spirit are sons of God. You want to know what the prescribed way is? You have God within you. Your own personal book of instruction in the way of the person of the Holy Spirit telling you constantly, Claire, this is right. Claire, that's wrong. Claire, I would like you to speak to them. I would like you not to. Anytime you're willing to be receptive so that you can always be in God's prescribed way. Because I've got news for you. There are times His prescribed way seemed to go against the written prescribed way. And the only way to reconcile those two things is to have His Spirit in you telling you what to do. Eat from a raven? No, I don't think so. Lie about the children being born? No, I don't think so. Lie about where the spies are? No, I don't think so. Go be a lying spirit in the mouth of their prophets? Mm, don't think so. Send them a delusion so that they might believe the lie? That's long. No, I don't think. All of those things seem to go against the truth of the written word. But we serve a God who's bigger than a book of rules. That won't I mean, I can just shudder thinking about who might get that CD and misapply those words. But in any case, you're bound to be led by the Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 3... Hang a right in the New Testament. It's, Genesis, uh, it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. I almost started all the way in Genesis. Y'all would have fell asleep by the time I got there. 1 Corinthians 3, and we're going to close here soon. But I want you all to get a couple of these points. 3.18 says, Do not deceive yourselves if any one of you thinks he is wise by the standards of this age. If any of you are a distinguished gentleman. He should become a fool so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about men. All things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are 
You are of Christ and Christ is of God. What should you have dignity about? The fact that God is entrusting you with all things. Now, even in that, because you seek the kingdom and you're blessed and you hear from God, you need to not presume about God. You need to not presume that because you do it, it's okay. Uh, Uzziah did that. I want you to think about one thing. I'm going to share a story and then about two more scriptures and we'll quit. I was in Lafayette, Louisiana, and Jesus was beginning to try to get my attention about moving to this place, Sugarland, And all this happened in a relatively quick succession. And I think sometimes God doesn't allow me a lot of time to deliberate because in my reasoning, I might reason him out. But if he speaks to me pretty clearly, I just rush and do it and kind of have a to hell with the, atti- the consequences attitude. Now, that may not work for you. Maybe you're an engineering type that has to weigh it all out and God will help. It works for me. I, I can be very impulsive in the kingdom as long as I know I heard from God. So I'm sitting there and the one thing that is causing me a real problem is I have spent several years witnessing to these people, building in their eyes a foundation of Christianity that I was the persona of. Now that's a hard way to say it and I I don't, here's it in common terms. I had a reputation with them of being a man of God. And what I was going to do was going to totally tarnish that reputation as a man of God. They were going to see everything that I was doing as disloyal and wrong. And in my mind, it would hurt the testimony of Christ. Now, that was part of it. The other part was, it would be humiliating to me to be seen as something other than a man of God. Now, I know you all can't relate to that at all. But that hurt. And I was in deliberation about it. And a good friend in another state said, Eric, why are you so worried about your reputation? And those words hit me. And I realized how alive to self I was instead of dead to self. And I turned to Luke 7, which is where I want you to turn. Our message being undignified. The answer to religious pride, the answer to the way that seems right to you, is to be even more undignified with God, to be willing to be humiliated. If you're not willing to be humiliated and undignified, you can't hear when He tells you to do something you don't want to do. You can't hear the little points of correction that say, don't put the ark on a cart. It needs to go on men's shoulders. You can't hear the correction that says, no, no, I have a certain way the censors are supposed to use. Don't misuse them. You can't hear that because there's a way that seems right to you and you have this dignity that you have it together already. You're not open to the idea that you might be doing it wrong. But once you remove that kind of religious pride, once you stop looking down the nose of Michael at the servants of God who are doing things differently than you and are open to the idea that God might do it in a way you don't understand, A whole new world opens up. Have you never seen in a revival people doing things you wouldn't do? Bucking? Trimmering? Any of those kind of things? Have you not seen it on video and turned and said that's not God? I have. Said that's not scriptural? God would never do that? And yet He has, hasn't He? I want you to find me a scriptural precedent for somebody spitting a big loogie into a pile of mud and making eyeballs for somebody. Where in the Old Testament do you see that foundation for a Jewish prophet named Jesus to do it? And yet he did it and it was God, wasn't it? How many things in the New Testament had no scriptural foundation in the Old? For the How about, uh, Lord, there's a bunch of them. How about walking out on water? What gave him the right to do that? 
We say, well, he was God. Yeah, but when we see something happen today and it very well could be God, what do we do? We go, well, there's no scriptural foundation for that. Doesn't matter that it was God, right? I mean, you know, I'm just trying to say we don't always have it right. And our religious dignity and our pride sometimes causes us to miss the correction of God. Listen to what they said about Jesus, what the religious people said about Jesus in his day. This is in Luke 7, verse 29. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. The baptism of John was one of repentance. When people were unwilling to repent before they heard the words of Jesus, they made no sense to them. But when they were willing to abase themselves, then they could hear the correction of God. The ones that were not willing to abase themselves, this is the kind of thing that they said about Jesus. It says, To what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace calling out to each other. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not cry. In other words, they won't respond to the message. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. By the way, that's wine. And you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard. A friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all her children. Jesus never sinned. And what was his reputation? Friend of sinners, tax collectors, a drunkard and a glutton. Even though he never sinned. Because of the things that he saw his father do and he did. That required him, Philippians says, to lay aside his dignity. Now you don't think of it that way. He laid aside who he was and humbled himself in the form of a man and a servant, not considering equality with God something to be grasped. Do you recognize that scripture? If you want to have a heart that's pleasing to God, you have to be willing to strip down and dance before people if that's what He tells you to do. You have to be willing to refrain from doing the things that you think are right when He says don't do it. You also have to be willing to have people think badly of you. Not that they think badly, it's that their thoughts about you are negative. I'll learn to speak the English language eventually. I have a neighbor here that seemed very happy to meet me. Loved all of our conversation and everything. Found out we had a church here and now he's avoiding me like the plague. You have to be willing to have that kind of stuff happen if you're going to be a servant of God. I had planned to do this and I think we're out of time, but Ezekiel 4 says some really interesting things. You said, God would never. I mean, after all, we have to be people that the world can look to for salvation. God told Ezekiel in the fourth chapter to lay on his side. To lay on his side for a certain number of days. Over 300. And then 40 more for the other house of Israel. And he was going to cook a certain amount of food, very small amounts every day, over human excrement. God would never. Why would he do that? Do you think that Ezekiel had to lay aside his dignity to be that representation of Israel for Israel. He gave them something to look at that God said, when you see him, that's what's going to happen to you. See, as a servant of God, you have said, 
I've been purchased by you, Lord. I'll do whatever you want, whenever you want. But the reality is, the first time he wants you to look bad, you will not do it. Got to make up your mind. Well, that was just Ezekiel, right? You got to turn to this one. This is funny. And besides, this isn't all the Bible trivia books that are any good and you need to know it. Isaiah is almost in the middle of your Bible. Turn to Psalms and hang a right. Turn to Isaiah 20. This will make you laugh. Judah, I want you to listen up. You'll never believe this was in the Bible, son. Isaiah 20. In the year of the supreme commander sent by Sargon, king of Assyria. Most people think that's Sennacherib. Who came to Ashdod and attacked and captured it. At that time, the Lord spoke through Isaiah, son of Amos. He said to him, Take off your sackcloth from your body and the sandals from your feet. And he did so, going around stripped and barefoot. Then the Lord said, Just as my servant Isaiah has gone stripped and barefoot for three years as a sign uh, and portent against Egypt and Cush, so the king of Assyria will lead away stripped and barefoot the Egyptians' captives in the Cushite exiles, young and old, with buttocks bared to Egypt's shame. What did Isaiah have to do for three years? And friends, the NIV has cleaned this one up some. Okay? Go look at it in all the other translations. Prophets wore sackcloth, at least Isaiah did. He had to take it all off. And he had to take his sandals off for three years. This guy walked around, as we say in the South, naked. (laughs) As a testimony of what was going to happen when these two kings fought. And he said, oh no, well, sackcloth was just the outer garment and the sandals. Then why does he say buttocks bared? I mean, come on, friends. He was humiliated. He was humiliated but he was willing to be undignified that God would receive glory. See, if you're not willing to do that, God can't use you. And as he uses you, if you don't keep that attitude, you find yourself offering strange fire and calling it God. You find yourself trying to do things God didn't call you to do because he's blessed everything else you did. You know what else you can do? Jesus, stop that. You know what else you can do? You can be excited when adversity comes because you realize This is kind of a wake-up call. If all I was was blessed all of the time, it would be hard for me and I wouldn't grow spiritually. So as much as we're unlikely servants of God, we're also the undignified servants of God. And as we paint this picture, there are people out there that will listen to this and they won't want to be it. And that's okay. If you don't fit into the unlikely and undignified category, it's okay. The kingdom of God's not for everybody. It's for those that are willing to look like fools that they might become kings. It's not for those that want to be kings now. It doesn't work that way. So next time Jesus tells you to say something to someone and you think, but they will think I may, you remember that Isaiah walked around naked for three years, that Ezekiel laid on his side and ate food. Actually, God relented for him because he begged and God loved him. It's not without mercy. And let him cook it over cow dung. Oh, how much better, right? Yeah. How, how, how much better? But, but you need to remember that if Jesus could humble himself taking the, the form of a man and because of that be exalted to the right hand of God, if that's the way that it works, you need to be able to be humbled to any low position that God might in, in his time raise you up. But if you're not willing to be obeyed, if you're not willing to admit you don't have all of the answers and accept whatever He tells you, then you can't be exalted. You just can't. Because you're exalted in your own eyes already. I don't think that fits this group. But the thing is, is, this is teaching 
and godly living. This is how you learn to walk out the gospel. And it's how when Jesus says do something, you can train yourself in righteousness to do what he says. You know, the same buddy that told me why was I worried about my reputation? You know, I can receive that from him. You know why I can receive it from him? Because I watched him at chapel on the campus with a thousand people there who all believed that prophecy has ceased, passed away. All of those things believe that God's spoken to him. He's terrified that God's spoken to him. Stand up on a chair and prophesy to all the people. You know, I've seen him be even more undignified. And it encourages me to do the same. Watched him tell, didn't watch, stood by as he told Jerry DiNardo, the, the uh, football coach at LSU, that God was going to cause him to lose his job. You know? Well, I figure if my buddy could do that, then I could receive correction from him about doing it in the same areas, right? And we see that as extraordinary. Wow, what a man of God he is. Y'all, that should be the average in the kingdom. That should be the normal. You know, that, that should be what we're all like. You know? In fact, you get to the place where when you walk into British Petroleum and they're having this whole big conference, you know, you're concerned that God might tell you to say something. <laughs> you know, I mean, you really do because you're waiting, you're on duty, you're waiting to run to the Ethiopian eunuch. You're waiting for that. And you know that he'll do it. But you have to make up your mind in advance that when he speaks, you will do. Or else, you won't. You'll be in the unfavorable category. You might wish that God would go ahead and strike you rather than let you live a life of disobedience. Okay, we're, we're going to close here so it fits on a CD. And y'all stand up and we'll pray. Uh, Closing note, Matthew 18 teaches you you must become like a little child. Think about this, just especially those of you that have been parents. My little boys, when they were very young, one still very young, would get out of the shower and run all around the house naked with absolutely no shame, just dance and be as excited as could be. And it's joyful. There's nothing wrong in it. There's no shame in it. Now, there's a million reasons you need to be like a little child. But one is, when they believe something's pleasing to their parents, they could care less what everybody else thinks. Jesus then prayed in Matthew 11, Lord, I thank you. I bless you, Father, for revealing yourself to the little children. He'll give you all the knowledge you can handle. He'll give you all the revelation, all the power you can handle. As long as you have that kind of attitude. Lord, you want me to stand on my head and bark like a dog? I will do it. You know, we say, he would never. He just might. You know, who are you, little man, to tell God what he can and can't do? So, well, we measure it by the Word. And if it's not in the Word, we don't do it. Okay, well, get rid of your electricity. Get rid of your indoor plumbing. Get rid of your microwaves because the Word doesn't mention any of those things. And yet, they're not ungodly. Okay, let's pray.